Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, and we like to begin our show with a prayer, and we will be praying the Angelus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The angel of the Lord declared unto Mary, and she conceived of the Holy Spirit, Hail Hail Mary, Mary, full full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it done unto me according to your word. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And the word was made flesh. And dwelt among us. Hail Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Let us pray. Pour forth, we beseech you, O Lord, your grace into our hearts, that we, to whom the incarnation of Christ your Son was made known by the message of an angel, may by his passion and cross be brought to the glory of his resurrection through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. This week, we conclude our three-part series on the Mass. So far, Bishop has discussed the history of the Mass in part one, and then the introductory rites and the liturgy of the Word in part two. On this episode, he'll discuss the deep meaning and rich tradition behind the last two elements of the Mass, the liturgy of the Eucharist and the concluding rites. Afterwards, it's on to listener-submitted questions on things like the Pope's recent announcement of 14 new cardinals, as well as confirmation and baptism. To check out previous episodes of Truth and Charity, including parts one and two of this series on the Mass, go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop, which is also where you can submit a question for a future show, or download the free Redeemer Radio app onto your smartphone or tablet and select Ask Your Questions. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our good Bishop. Thank you again for taking some time out of your schedule to, to enlighten us. You're welcome, Kyle. Great to be with you again. And we're uh, continuing part three of our three-part series on the Mass. The first one was a general overview. The second one, we did the introductory rite and the liturgy of the Word. Today, we're going to talk about the liturgy of the Eucharist and the concluding rites. Very good. This major part of the Mass, the liturgy of the Eucharist, we're really carrying out our Lord's command at the Last Supper. Do this in memory of me. Mm -hmm. So we're carrying out the Paschal sacrifice and banquet. The liturgy of the Eucharist begins with the preparation of the gifts. The bread and wine, which will become Christ's body and blood, are brought forward to the altar by the faithful. Often we speak of this as the offertory procession. And also the collection is brought up, the gifts for the needs of the church and the poor. A few weeks ago in our program, you might recall, we we read that passage from St. Justin Martyr about how the... uh, the Eucharist was celebrated back in the second century. And right. uh, do you remember they took up a collection mm-hmm. even back then? So this part of the Mass, the preparation of the gifts, is also called the offertory, 
we offer these gifts to God, actually we're returning his <laughs> gifts that he gave to us because everything we have is ultimately his gift to us. But the offertory is all about our offering ourselves with Christ at the altar. So we offer bread, wine, money, and ourselves. The money we give in the collection is, is really a sign of giving our lives to the Lord. And we shouldn't think of the preparation of the gifts as just an interval between the liturgy of the Word and the liturgy of the Eucharist. I really like a, uh, an explanation that was given by our Pope Emeritus, Benedict XVI, about the presentation of the gifts. Pope Benedict said, and I quote, this humble and simple gesture is actually very significant. In the bread and wine that we bring to the altar, all creation is taken up by Christ the Redeemer to be transformed and presented to the Father. In this way, we also bring to the altar all the pain and suffering of the world in the certainty that everything has value in God's eyes." Hmm. End quote. Now, the prayers at the altar that the priest says uh, over the offerings are reminiscent of table prayers that were said by the Jewish people. They're prayers of blessing, praising God for his creation. So the priest, for example, holds up the bread and then the wine. He says, blessed are you, Lord God of all creation. So we're offering the gifts of creation back to God. And of course, bread and wine, they're food, they are signs of life. We offer creation, life, God's gift back to him as a sacrifice of love. People often wonder why the priest pours a little bit of water into the chalice of the wine. Uh -huh. This mingling of water and wine with wine is a rich symbol of the union of Christ's divine and human nature. We call it the hypostatic union. You mm -hmm. might have heard that, that uh, theological expression, the hypostatic union. Jesus is one person, a divine person, with two natures, human and divine. So we have the mingling of the water and the wine, reminding us of the union, the hypostatic union. But also the mingling of the water and the wine also signifies the blood and the water that poured forth from Christ's side on the cross. And the union of our own gifts with Christ's perfect gift of himself. So when the priest is mixing the water with the wine, this is what he says. You know, there's these quiet prayers that the people don't hear, but this is what uh -huh. he says. By the mystery of this water and wine, may we come to share in the divinity of Christ who humbled himself to share in our humanity. So again, that union of Christ divine in human nature. Now the gifts and the altar can be incensed at that point. And that, of course, signifies the church's offering and the church's prayer rising like incense in the sight of God. And then the priest washes his hands. Where did that begin? Well, it was a very practical thing early on in the early church. His hands were probably dirty. So. Uh -huh. 
But now it's a symbolic thing. It expresses the need for inner purity at the beginning of this sacred action. And that's why, again, the priest prays quietly. Again, it's inaudibly. As he, his hands are washed, he says, Wash me, O Lord, from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Now, sometimes people think, well, the priest is up there doing his thing. What am I doing? You know, I'm not really involved. Well, yes, the people are very involved because remember, the laity participate in the sacrifice. That's why at the end of the, this part of the presentation of the gifts, what does the priest say? He says, pray, brothers and sisters, that my sacrifice and yours mm. may be acceptable to God, the Almighty Father. So the whole assembly, with the priest who's acting in the person of Christ, offers the sacrifice of the Mass. The people respond with a devout supplication, which is an earnest petition. May the Lord accept the sacrifice at your hands for the praise and glory of his name, for our good and the good of all his holy church. You know, we're so used to saying these prayers. It's good now and then to maybe just, you know, think about them a little bit more because they really are beautiful. And then the priest says what's called the prayer over the offerings. And that prayer over the offerings, and that changes it's each week, that concludes the preparation of the gifts. And that's a, uh, the first part of the liturgy of the Eucharist. So now we're ready for the the center, the summit of the whole Mass, what's called the Eucharistic prayer, or in Greek, the anaphora. Anaphora. It's a new word maybe for some of our listeners. Yeah. Anaphora. It's really the heart of the Mass. It's the summit of the Mass. It's a great prayer of thanksgiving and consecration. It begins with the priest calling upon the people to lift up their hearts to the Lord in praise and thanksgiving. Lift up your hearts. In Latin, sorsum corda. And the whole congregation of the faithful now joins with Christ in confessing the great deeds of God in the offering of sacrifice. So it's important to listen to the Eucharistic prayer with reverence and in silence. We have four main Eucharistic prayers that can be used. There are some others also that are infrequently used, but they're permissible, Eucharistic prayers for reconciliation. And there's a few for special needs and occasions. But the main Eucharistic prayers that you hear most often are one of the four. Hmm. Um, and these Eucharistic prayers have been handed down to us by the church's living tradition. They are... Uh, centuries old. They have a lot of theological depth and spiritual richness. But there are main elements of the Eucharistic prayer. It always begins with what's called the preface. That's a prayer of thanksgiving. You know, after that dialogue where the priest says, lift up your hearts, etc., uh -huh. then we have the preface, this prayer of thanksgiving, where we glorify God the Father, we thank Him for the whole work of salvation, or a particular aspect of that work according to the liturgical season, the feast, the day. We give thanks for creation, redemption, and sanctification. So 
the preface is um, is important, and it and it finishes with everybody singing the holy, 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 the Sanctus. We're really joining in the unending praise that the church in heaven is singing to the Trinity, the angels and the saints. You know, holy, 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 three holies, three mm-hmm. persons in one God. It's like an ascent to heaven that we're joining together with the voices of the church on earth with the church in heaven. Mm-hmm. We're praying with the angels and the saints. And notice when we pray the Sanctus, the holy, 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 there are two biblical passages that we're quoting because that first part when we say holy, 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 that comes from the prophet Isaiah. When he encountered the glory of the Lord in the temple, Isaiah heard the angels, the angelic hosts singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. They cried to one another. Hmm. All the earth is filled with his glory. If you read Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, that's really the first part of, of the holy, holy, holy that we sing at Mass. And the second part, everybody, I think, probably recognizes, comes from Palm Sunday. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the crowds proclaimed, we read in Matthew chapter 21, verse 9, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. This is what's called in the Bible an enthronement song. Hmm. When the king of Israel would enter, this is what they would, this is what they'd sing. They'd greet him with those words, you know, Hosanna. So we sing this praise as we begin the Eucharistic prayer in which our our king will enter, our crucified and risen king. He's entering. He's going to become present at the Eucharistic banquet of the of the kingdom of God. Beautiful when you think about it. Yeah. The Sanctus is is a joyful song, but it's also a song to purify our hearts. Think about it. Heaven and earth are about to meet. So the Sanctus reminds us that the Mass isn't just our celebration. It's the liturgy of heaven and earth. Our voices are joined with the voices of the heavenly liturgy. And then at the end of the Sanctus, we kneel. Now, this is a a Western posture of adoration. In the Eastern churches, they they stand. That's their posture for adoration. Okay. And for them, kneeling would be just a penitential posture. But for us, kneeling is not just a penitential posture, but also a posture for adoration. And we kneel because we will be adoring the king of the universe. Mm-hmm. Now, with when we're kneeling, part of the a very important part of the Eucharistic prayer is what's called the epiclesis. The epiclesis. And with the prayer of epiclesis, the church implores the power of the Holy Spirit that the gifts offered by human hands will be consecrated, that they'll be made holy. That's what consecrate means, that they'll be made holy, that they will become Christ's body and blood. Mm -hmm. So in the epiclesis, before the consecration, the priest extends his hands over the bread and wine with the palms facing down. Very ancient gesture. It's a 
a gesture of expressing the calling down of the Holy Spirit, the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit, like at creation, or when the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary at the Annunciation and, mm-hmm. and, and God became man. So the epiclesis is a calling down of the Holy Spirit on the gifts of bread and wine. I'll give you an example. In Eucharistic prayer too, this is what the priest says as he puts his hands, extends his hands over the bread and wine. He prays, make holy these gifts by sending down your spirit upon them like the dewfall so that they may become for us the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that reference to the dewfall. Yeah. It's related to Israel being fed with manna in the desert. Huh. We're asking for the Holy Spirit to descend upon the bread and wine like the manna in the desert. Now, there's also a second epiclesis after the consecration. So the one before the consecration, we're asking the Holy Spirit to come upon the bread and wine and transform them into the body and blood of Christ. The epiclesis after the consecration, we're calling down the Holy Spirit on us who will receive the Eucharist that we will be sanctified, that we will be gathered into a true communion of faith and love, that we may be one body and one spirit. We're calling down the spirit to build us up as the body of Christ in the world. Now, between these two epicleses, we have really the core moment, the account of Christ's institution of the Eucharist at the Last Supper. We call this the consecration or the institution narrative. The priest pronounces the words of Jesus over the bread and wine, the words that Jesus said at the Last Supper. So the sacrifice is thus effected by the words of Christ and the action of the Holy Spirit. Christ becomes present under the species of bread and wine. We speak of this as his real presence, his sacramental presence, and his sacrifice offered once for all on the cross becomes present. We could say the new Passover becomes present. And when the priest is saying those words, this is my body, this is my blood, he's speaking in the person of Christ. Christ is the priest here. Mm-hmm. Because of his ordination, the priest is empowered. He can speak in the name and the person of Christ at Mass. And those words are efficacious. It's important to note, this isn't just remembering the Last Supper. You know, the event of Christ's death and resurrection is becoming present. Christ's body and blood become present. The bread and wine are transformed into Christ's body and blood. The church refers to this transformation, this this change, as transubstantiation. So there's a change in the substance, the being. Under the species of bread and wine, the species are still there, but the substance changes. The living Christ becomes present in a true real, substantial manner. His body and blood with his soul and his divinity. 
So we speak of transubstantiation. The substance is changed. The reality is changed. Now, the accidents, the physical characteristics of bread and wine, they remain, mm -hmm. but the substance changes. So after this amazing miracle, the priest will chant or, or say, the mystery of faith. This is really a mystery. And there are three options of a response. Uh, and all three prayers that the people say are addressed no longer to the Father. They are addressed to Jesus because he's now there present okay. in the Eucharist. After the consecration, we have the, the anamnesis. And anamnesis is a Greek word that means memorial. Memorial. So the church is remembering in this prayer, the passion, death, resurrection, ascension, and glorious return of Christ. So with Christ's body and blood now present on the altar, we remember what he did. And then after the anamnesis, we have the oblation. Another word for oblation is offering. Mm -hmm. We offer Christ's body and blood and ourselves together with Jesus as a sacrifice an offering in love to God for the salvation of the world. We offer this holy and living sacrifice, the sacrifice of Christ and of his church. We join our offering to his, the sacrifice that brings salvation to all the world. Then the next part of the Eucharistic prayer is the intercessions which remind us that we're celebrating the Eucharist in communion with the whole church of heaven and earth, and that the oblation is made for her and for all her members, the living and the dead, all called to participate in the salvation accomplished by the body and blood of Christ. It's celebrated in communion with the pastors of the church, so we remember them and pray for them, the Pope, the diocesan bishop, the priests and deacons and the bishops of the whole world and their churches. And we don't forget the deceased. We're still in a communion of love with those who've gone before us. And we're in communion with the saints in heaven. So this communion crosses the boundaries of space and time. It's communion, saints in heaven, the souls in purgatory and the, the church, the people on earth, this powerful union of love that is the church. And then the Eucharistic prayer ends with what's called the doxology. A lot of these are Greek words, doxology. It means word of glory. The priest lifts the host and the chalice and refers to Jesus, saying or singing through him, with him, in him, all glory and honor is yours, almighty Father, forever and ever. And everyone responds with a resounding amen. Mm -hmm. Traditionally, we call this the great amen. You know, even back in the early church, St. Jerome reported that in Rome, when the great amen was proclaimed, all of the pagan temples trembled. <laughs> I mean, we have that. So the amen is the people confirming all that was proclaimed and prayed by the priest in the Eucharistic prayer. So after that, we have what's called the communion rite. 
a celebration of the Eucharist. I've been referring to it as properly as a sacrifice. It's also a banquet. It's the Paschal banquet. We receive the body and blood of Christ as spiritual food. Now, the first part of the communion rite is the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father. Mm -hmm. Notice it's a prayer we dare to say Hmm. at our Savior's command and formed by divine teaching. I mean, it's daring to call God, the creator of the universe, Father, our Father. Other religions, that was kind of unheard of. Yeah. You know? Notice one of the petitions in the Our Father is for our daily bread, mm-hmm. which is primarily the bread from heaven that feeds our greatest desires and our deepest hungers, the bread of life. We also ask for forgiveness of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And we pray that God will deliver us from evil. And these petitions in the Our Father are a very appropriate preparation for Holy Communion because the Eucharist gives us new strength against temptation and against evil. Now, after the Our Father, there's a prayer called the embolism that the priest says. It kind of develops that last petition of the Our Father, deliver us from evil. Mm -hmm. The priest goes on, deliver us from every evil, etc. And then we have another doxology, that word of glory, word of praise that we find in some of the earliest liturgical texts going back to the early centuries. For yours is the power and the glory forever and ever. All right. Well, thank you, Bishop. If you don't mind, we'll take a quick break. And when we come back, we can talk more about the Mass right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our Bishop. And we've been talking about the Mass. This is our third part of the Mass, talking about the Liturgy of the Eucharist. And when we left off, we were talking about the Communion Rite, specifically the Lord's Prayer. Bishop, would you mind sharing what comes next? The next part of the Communion Rite is the Rite of Peace. The Church asks for peace and unity for herself and for the whole human family. And then we exchange a sign of peace with one another. Now, in earlier times, this was a ritual kiss. What is the peace that we offer? It's not just the absence of conflict. When we say peace be with you or the peace of Christ be with you to the person next to us, we're really offering or uh, extending to them a wish of well-being and harmony with God, with our neighbors, with creation. This peace is a gift of God that was won for us by the risen Christ. It's his peace that's exchanged. You know, so when you make the sign of peace, you don't say, oh, how are you doing? No, uh-huh. you're offering the peace of Christ. And it's also a gesture that we're members of Christ's body. It's a reminder of our Lord's exhortation to forgive one's enemy before coming to the altar. Remember, Mm -hmm. Jesus said, if you bring your gift to the altar and there recall that your brother has anything against you, go first and be reconciled with your brother, but then come and offer your gift. You know, we're not properly disposed for Holy Communion if we're not reconciled, if we don't have love of neighbor in our hearts. So the rite of peace reminds us of that. 
Next, we have what's called the fraction of the bread. That's the breaking of the bread. Just like Jesus did at the Last Supper, the priest breaks the host. And that's been done since apostolic times. Even before it was called the Mass or called the Eucharist, it was called the breaking of the bread. That's what the Mass was called in those early decades of the church. And we can think about the two disciples in Emmaus. St. Luke tells us that they recognize Jesus in the breaking of the bread. So we still do that. We have the breaking of the host. Mm -hmm. So this breaking, this fraction of the bread, what does it mean? It signifies that the many faithful are made one body by receiving Holy Communion. Now the Lamb of God is then sung, the Agnus Dei. We call on Christ at this moment as the Lamb of God who has conquered sin and death, and we call upon him to have mercy on us and to grant us peace. Think about it. On the altar is the Lamb who was slain. This recalls the Passover, doesn't it? The Passover sacrifice and the mercy and peace of the new Passover. Now, while breaking the bread, the priest puts a piece of the host into the chalice to signify the unity of the body and blood of the Lord in the work of salvation. Hmm. And then he lifts up the sacred host and he speaks the words of John the Baptist. You know, the Mass is filled with scripture. He says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Exact quote from John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 29. Hmm. And then we respond with another quote from Matthew, chapter 8, verse 8. We respond with the humble words of the Roman centurion. Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word and my soul shall be healed. So then we're ready and we have the distribution and the reception of Holy Communion. And this, the priest says a private prayer of preparation before he receives and the people prepare themselves back in the pews quietly in prayer. And then coming forward, In receiving communion, we're really obeying Jesus' command. He said, take and eat, Mm -hmm. take and drink. And uh, at this point, a communion hymn or antiphon is sung, which expresses the spiritual unity of all the people coming up for communion. We receive the body and blood of Christ who offered himself for the life of the world. Recall John chapter 6, verse 53. Truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. So we're most intimately united with Jesus in Holy Communion. In that same chapter of John's Gospel, chapter 6, we read, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. It's good to think about these things. In communion, Christ is uniting us to himself, and he's uniting us to all the members of his body, the church. He's uniting us to one another. Mm -hmm. That's why we say the Eucharist makes the church. 
the Eucharist makes us one body. And remember, St. Paul taught this in his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 10, verse 17. The Apostle Paul wrote, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. We say amen when we receive communion as an assent to it in faith. We say amen. We're saying Yes, I believe. Now, after receiving communion, it really should be a time of silent meditation, a time of interior prayer and contemplation. It's really a precious time of thanksgiving. And sometimes at that point, they may have a communion motet or a song of praise that's sung, but that shouldn't replace some time of silence. Now, this whole uh, liturgy of the Eucharist ends with what's called the prayer after communion. The priest stands, and we all stand, and the priest prays for the community of faith, asking that the spiritual effects of the Eucharist will be experienced in the lives of the faithful. That's basically what that prayer, I mean, it's a different prayer at different masses, but that's the basic thing. The priest is praying for the fruits, basically, of the mystery that was just celebrated. So that ends the liturgy of the Eucharist, and then we finish the Mass with the next part, which are is very brief, called the concluding rites. Uh-huh. Now, sometimes brief announcements are given, but those announcements should never be made before the prayer after communion. You know, it shouldn't interrupt the liturgy of the Eucharist. They should only be after the prayer after communion. So after the, uh, if there are brief announcements, then the priest gives a final blessing. Sometimes a very simple blessing. Sometimes it's expanded, especially on Sundays and holy days and solemnities. There could be an expanded blessing. And of course, we make the sign of the cross, ending Mass just as we began Mass Mm. with the sign of the cross. And then the priest or the deacon says the words of dismissal. And we're sent forth to glorify God by our lives to announce the gospel of the Lord. We're really being sent to live the Eucharist that we just received in our lives, to put into effect the Paschal mystery Uh that was celebrated. And we say, thanks be to God. I mean, great. it's a grateful word, a statement of grateful praise for the gift that we've just received. Thanks be to God. So the Mass is over, but we remember there's work to be done, the Hmm. sanctification of the world we're sent to evangelize, to bring God's love into the world. You know, the original Latin, at the end of Mass, they would say, ite, misa est, which means, that's where we get the word Mass, by the way, uh, from that Latin word, misa est. So ite, misa est, literally means, go, you are sent. We're sent forth on mission Hmm. to live the Eucharistic mystery to live the sacrifice of love in our homes and in the world. I often remember those challenging words of uh, Pope Benedict XVI. He said, a Eucharist which does not pass over into the concrete practice of love is intrinsically fragmented. So anyhow, the Mass is such a great treasure, Kyle, and it's the heart of the life of the Church. So I hope these... um, 
these reflections are, are helpful to our listeners. It has been helpful and encourage people, if you missed any of today's episode or the past two episodes where we talked about the Mass, go ahead and check those out. You can go to RedeemerRadio.com slash Ask Bishop or in the Redeemer Radio app or wherever you get podcasts. Uh, you can also ask your questions by calling or texting the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And coming up, Bishop will answer questions about interesting places Bishop has celebrated Mass, the new Cardinals, and more on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. We are answering questions that you've submitted for our bishop to answer. Our first submission is, what are some of the most interesting places you have celebrated Mass? Oh my goodness, I've been blessed to celebrate Mass at so many great places. Um, you know, one that sticks out to me is when I celebrated Mass at the Basilica of the Annunciation in Nazareth in the Grotto, where the angel appeared to Mary and, and the word became flesh in her womb, the moment of the incarnation, that was very powerful for me. I'll never forget because it, it had an inscription. It said, it was in Latin, verbum caro factum est, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Mm. But, it, but it added the word hic, here, mm. the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I mean, that was amazing to me to think, oh, it was on that spot that God became man. And here, Christ was going to become present in the Eucharist. But other places, uh, Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. I had Mass at the what would have been Calvary, you know, where Jesus died and then rose from the dead in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. So many places I've been blessed to celebrate Mass. And wherever, in the most simplest chapel, I've been in very poor places, but also in big, beautiful cathedrals. Yeah. Um, I celebrate Mass on the altar above where St. John Paul II is buried. That meant a lot to me. World Youth Day, I'll remember in Poland, celebrating Mass at, at the altar right below the image of Our Lady of Czestochowa. I could go on and yeah. on. So many uh, wonderful places, yeah. All right, our next question. Pope Francis recently announced he will create 14 new cardinals. Do you know any of them? Do you hope to be a cardinal one day? Do you have to be an archbishop first? <laughs> I can answer the latter questions. No, I don't hope to be a cardinal. <laughs> uh, but and, and no, you don't have to be an archbishop first. It's, okay. it's whoever the pope chooses. As far as the 14 new cardinals, I only know one of them. The prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, Archbishop Ladaria, he's a Spaniard, mm -hmm. was a professor of mine in oh. the seminary. So yeah, he taught us a course. He was a wonderful man on theological anthropology, huh. Christian anthropology, and uh, he was really good. And I, I, he was pretty young when I had him as a teacher, and now he's the prefect of the congregation. So I'm happy for him, and he was a really good professor. I learned so much from him but he's the only one of the 14 you know the others are from all different kinds of countries as i said he's from spain there are a few italians it was interesting i was happy to see that the uh the chaldean catholic patriarch of babylon the head of the chaldean catholic church patriarch louis Raphael sacco is going to uh be made a cardinal and he's the main bishop catholic bishop in iraq uh -huh. i don't know if they ever had a cardinal before but pope francis has been naming cardinals in a lot of places where they didn't have cardinals before 
the Archbishop of Karachi in Pakistan. He's one of them. Hmm. So it's interesting to see that. I think it's June 29th when they, the Feast of Saints Peter and Paul, when they have the uh, creation of the new cardinals. All right. Well, you can ask your questions by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And more coming up right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman asking the questions that you've submitted, kind of a tag off of last week's questions. We both we talked about both baptism and confirmation. You suggested reading the catechism. Well, our listener quoted both catechisms, paragraph 1266 and 1303 and 1304, talking about baptism and confirmation. And the question is, if confirmation completes baptism and increases the baptismal grace, does this imply in a way that the sacrament of baptism is lacking something or incomplete? There's also a follow-up question. If we receive the Holy Spirit and the gifts of baptism, why then is the form of the sacrament of confirmation be sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit. Do we receive the Holy Spirit twice? Wow, there's a lot of questions in there. I think I can see where a, a, a person can have these questions because baptism and confirmation have always been very, very closely associated. Mm-hmm. Even to this day, Catholics who are Eastern Catholics, they receive both sacraments together as infants. So when we've had this separation of the time of the two sacraments, it it gives rise to various questions that perhaps weren't there before when they were done together. So anyhow, I think maybe to try to understand when a person is baptized, that person, yes, does receive the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, one becomes a dwelling place, a temple of the Holy Spirit. One becomes really a dwelling place. The Holy Trinity comes and dwells within us mm-hmm. when we're baptized. But when we speak of confirmation, we're talking about an anointing in which the Christian receives that gift of the fully receives that gift of the Holy Spirit okay. that he already he or she already received in baptism in a fundamental way in an initial way. So there's a specific grace that comes with confirmation, and that's the special strength to bear witness to Christ in our words and in our deeds, to spread and defend the faith. So there's this special seal of the Holy Spirit, we could say, with that particular end in mind, witness. Mm-hmm. So the baptismal grace that one received is, is brought to fulfillment in confirmation. We are united more firmly to Christ. We're united more firmly to his church. We receive an increase of the gifts of the Holy Spirit that mm-hmm. we received at baptism. But with that special strength, that's the key, the special strength to spread and, and defend the faith by our words and actions as witnesses of Christ. So I think the, um, the connection between baptism and understanding this connection between baptism and confirmation is, is important. All right. That question also finished with, thank you and may God continue to bless you in your ministry. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. 
And thank you again for taking some time out of your day to share with us on the Mass and answer some of these questions. Can we get your Episcopal blessing before we go? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Join us next Wednesday at noon as Bishop Rose discusses Religious Freedom Week, which begins Friday, June 22nd and ends June 29th. It's a time to become more aware of issues surrounding religious freedom, advocate for conscience protection rights, and pray for religious liberty. Then it'll be more listener-submitted questions. This time, they will all be from students who attend a Catholic school in the Fort Wayne South Bend Diocese. If you would like to submit a question for a future show or check out previous episodes, go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.